did too. I'm like, what's wrong with him? I know. I know. <laughs> right. Is this a song that you're familiar with? Yeah, okay. Did, have you heard this before? Okay. It is, it was one I, Andrew and I both went to school. You might have picked up on it earlier in our service that uh, we're starting a new sermon series this morning on light and love in the Christian life. And that's the title of the sermon series we're going to be using, that's the title we're going to be using as we look at the epistles of John, the letters of John. And so, uh, just a few words about that. Uh, as, as we get into this series, I'm hoping that you're going to see and intending to show you how John takes these very simple themes in Scripture and shows us that they're not just things for us that we perhaps learn as children or learn in the beginning of our faith, and then we master them and move on from them to more important or more interesting things, but rather that these themes of life and love, or excuse me, light and love in the Christian life, that these are themes that we need to come back to, that we can understand more fully and more deeply, but also that we can implement and, and, and live out more fully and more deeply. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, and we're going to start by reading First uh, John chapter 1. And so as we go through this series, each chapter will, will, will face one chapter a week. And so if you want to read ahead or if you want to keep up, uh, next week will be chapter 2, the week after that, chapter 3, and so on. So these are uh, the epistles from John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message you have heard from him, and we declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, with God, and yet walk in darkness, we lie or we deceive ourselves and we do not live in the truth. But if we do walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, God's Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, We make God out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the title of this sermon, the first in the series, is We Have Seen the Light of Life, a title that I simply stole from the first few lines of John's letter. But as we open up uh, a new sermon series and a new letter, I think it's important for us to remember that When we're reading the New Testament epistles, we're reading other people's mail. That's always worth remembering. Because these these letters are, first of all, not to us. 
They are for us. They're for God's people, but first they're to someone else. And so as we get started on this series and as we get started in this sermon, I want to spend a few moments this morning wondering, or not wondering with you, but but exploring with you just who this original audience is, what's going on with them, who John is as a writer and what his purpose is in writing this first letter of 1 John and also the subsequent letters. We know from history, uh, from the history of the churches and also from a secular history, and we can also know from what's called mirror reading, reading what's going on in, in the text and saying, okay, well, why is John writing this? It must be to speak to something that's going on in the church. So we can use some tools of history and theology to help us understand who the audience was and what's going on with them. History tells us that John's audience here was probably a group of pretty small house churches. And we know from history that at this time in history, uh, people were gathering together in their homes to worship God. And so John is writing this letter uh, somewhat in general, not just to, to one person, like the pastoral epistles to Timothy or to Titus, but he's writing to a group or several groups of churches And we also know from, or we can understand from the content of what John writes in 1 John and 2 John especially, that there seems to have been an issue with these Christians in these house churches, or at least some of them, that theologians have called secessionist or secessionism. Now, this secessionist idea has nothing to do with the American South, uh, but it, it is to do with that idea of seceding. That there were Christians in these house churches who seemed to have believed that because they were born of God, that they weren't sinners anymore. After all, why would John say, if we claim to be without sin, why would he make that point unless some people were claiming to be without sin, or at least moving in that direction? And so there seems to have been a group, probably a significant group among these house churches who were... uh, saying to themselves, well, because we are born of God, we are without sin, or at least we're moving in that direction. And it could be that they thought that because they were among the first to to grow up as people who spent their entire life in the household of faith, that their parents had been converts, but that they had grown up, and they were the first uh, in in, uh, the history of Christianity to grow up in the faith. They might have believed that because uh, they were baptized and have thought that in their baptism, they lost that old identity and completely lost the ability to sin. Or they might have believed that they, because they were working so hard and they were so pious and so good, that, that they had attained a level of spirituality which meant that they, were, they weren't able to sin anymore, or at least that they were very unlikely to sin Whatever the reason for this idea or this belief, I think we can summarize it simply by saying there was a sense of spiritual superiority. That there was a group among these Christians who strongly believed that they were better than others. They were perhaps better than their parents because other Christians were able to sin and they weren't. Or at least that they looked down on others. They thought 
that they had attained some sort of level that others hadn't. And so John is writing, and the purpose of 1 John and 2 John especially, seems to be to combat this idea of spiritual superiority. And the, the attitude that John takes, or the way in which he addresses that spiritual superiority, is not to try and come at these people with a hammer and beat them down, but rather to kindly and to humbly remind them about the basics of the Christian faith. As I said in the introduction, basics that they have not mastered nor graduated from, but basics they need to return to and humble themselves and find their place in the life of Christ and in the, in the body of Christ. Another way to say it maybe would be to say that John thinks he can attract more flies with honey. That he's trying to be kind and gentle to these people rather than to to use the authority he has as a weapon against them. And if we understand a little bit more about who John is, who this author is, then I think the fact that he goes about writing the letter this way becomes even more beautiful. Christian history and tradition tells us that the, the John who wrote these letters is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. He's the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, the disciple of Jesus. And we have no reason to doubt Christian history or to disagree with it. And so we'll, we'll stick with what the church has said on this for many years. But we know a fair bit. We know, we, well, we know very little about John's audience, but we actually know quite a bit about John. After all, John shows up many times in places in the Gospels and in Jesus' ministry. And as I mentioned, he wrote, wrote a Gospel of his own. And there's one story that I think is really quite significant here when we think about John writing to people who have a problem with spiritual superiority. Early in Jesus' ministry, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want, to do, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, if you're a parent, I imagine alarm bells are going off right now, right? If you've ever had a child come to you and say, Mom, Dad, I'm just going to ask you to do something and you have to say yes right? That is a recipe for disaster. But that's what, that's what James and John do. They come to Jesus and they say, whatever, te- teacher, whatever we ask you, it's not going to be a big deal, we promise. We just want you to say yes. And so Jesus wisely doesn't say yes. He says, what do you want me to do for you? They reply, let one of us sit on your right and the other sit on your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus says. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And now here's where it really gets good. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. No surprise, I think, right? It takes, if if we're talking about spiritual superiority, it takes a lot of gumption. You must think pretty highly of yourself to say, okay, Jesus, I know among the 12 and among the 72 who follow you and even among the 500 and the hundreds of others who are following you, I'm pretty sure my brother and I should be right at the center of attention. 
that we should be at your right and at your left. No wonder the, the ten, the others, are indignant. This is John. This is the author who years later is writing humbly and gently and patiently to the Christians who seem to think that they are without sin, that they're much better than others. What a, what a wonderful thing that God does and that Jesus does. Correcting patiently James and John, not only in this instance recorded in Mark, but all throughout his ministry. And then using John to share the lesson of humility and patience and endurance. To share the lessons that he had learned with Christians in the next generation and another time and place who are facing the same struggles. This is where the themes of John in his letters come to life. That the light of God, the love of God, and the life that God gives his people to share with him and with one another. The the importance and the value of those themes. And John uh, doesn't just talk about uh, light and love as things that Christians ought to embody and share with others, but as we see in chapter 1 here, John shows us that the, the light comes from heaven, that the love is from God, and that the life that we live is an outpouring or an outflowing of the life that God has sent to us. He says here in chapter 1, the life appeared and we testify to it. Plain, simple, square. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The life appeared and we testify to it. I'd like to think that if the Apostle Paul was trying to make this point, he would have taken several paragraphs or maybe chapters to build up to that, uh, that climax. But here John just hits it right away. A profound statement about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, about our identity. The life appeared, Jesus appeared. And what it means to be a follower is to testify to that life. Not to testify to what my life is about or what I'm doing or the good that's happening in me, but to testify to the life that appeared, to Jesus' life. And that, the, the impact of that is even more significant in the Greek because that word testify in Greek is marturion, which is where we get our English word martyr from. And it's a word that means to witness or to testify, but it's a word that also means to to give up, to, to, to testify in such a way that you give your whole life up even unto death. And so John is saying, look, Jesus, the life appeared, and our whole job, our whole role is to testify with our words, with our deeds, with our lives, and even with our death to testify to Jesus, to focus every part of ourselves on him. And then he goes on and he says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and that that you may have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That when we do that, when we testify to the light and the life of Jesus, and that when we share when we proclaim that life and that light with others then we have fellowship we grow together and and john says that that leads to joy again if he's 
patiently, kindly, and gently trying to call these Christians to something better, then it's a corrective. Because what these Christians seem to have believed is that somehow that their status, their spiritual superiority, that that would bring fellowship, that that would bring community, that that would bring joy. But Jesus says, or John says, no, it's our focus on Jesus that brings us fellowship, that brings us joy. And then he also has this aside that he ends chapter 1 with, or that we at least ended our reading this morning with. It's a side about what false community looks like. False community, John says, that is, is a community where we claim to be without sin. That spiritual superiority that we talked about before. Now, I think it's worth noting that claiming to be without sin is only one way of trying to be spiritually superior There's probably few of us, if any of us, who would stand up in church and say, yep, I am without sin. I don't think any of us would dare to do that. But it's much easier for us to look down at someone else and think, huh, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. Or to be kind of proud of ourselves like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable who who comes and prays and says, God, thank you so much that you didn't make me like that person over there in the corner. Thank you that you made me like me with all the privileges and joys of being who I am. That's just a different kind of spiritual superiority. And John says that all of these attitudes the looking down at others, the claiming special positions or power for ourselves, even as he did. All these things lead to false community, to self-deception. True community, John says, is testifying to God's light in and around us, not to our personal goodness. And there's such a what, what seems often like a, a kind of thin line there, but it's a line, I think, that cuts through our very hearts, testifying to God's light rather than our personal goodness. I think it's not always in what we say, but it is in our hearts. The difference between saying, look how good I am, and look how good God is, that he is in me and with me. The psalmist in Psalm 36 says, God, in your light, we see light. And I think that's the the guiding principle for us as we think about testifying to God's light and his life in and around us. When we think about sharing with our friends or neighbors, sharing with our family members about the light of God, what's the point of our stories? Is the point to make ourselves look good and say, look at all the wonderful things that God has done for me, with me at the, at the center? Or is it to say, as the wonderful hymn goes, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, rather than to say, wow, look how wonderful I am and how wonderful God is to me, rather to say, look how great our Savior is, that he would even save me, humbled and broken as I am. 
True community, John says, is that we testify to God's light and to his life in us and all around us. And secondly, he says that true community happens when we walk in the light, which maybe seems obvious, right? If we're testifying to the light with our mouths, then we also need to walk in the light with our feet. But again here, in Jesus' day and in John's day, walking was your whole life. In fact, one of the words that that in Greek that they had for walking or for living was simply literally translated as walking around. All of life was walking around. And so John is saying, if we walk in the light, all of our life needs to be happening in the light. Which is a whole lot harder than simply testifying to the light and talking about how wonderful God is. It challenges us to to look inward and to wonder to ourselves, are there areas of my life that I am very happy to hide back in the corner in the shadows so that nobody can see them because I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed, I don't want to share? Or, are there, is there, are there behaviors in my life where I'm trying to stand tall and maybe cast a shadow on someone else so that in relief against someone else, I look better than I am or I feel better than I am? John says, don't walk in the darkness. Walk in the light. All of life to be brought into view not, not view of everyone and view of the public, not that we need to air our dirty laundry out all, all the time, but everything brought to the light of God so that everything we say, everything we do, even everything we think and desire is submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. All our actions and all of our life, we might say, needs to be lived in light of God's action. And so that's where I want to close with this morning. Are you living in light of Christ's action for you? That's a question that only you can answer. Nobody else has the privilege or the right to look at your life and point out all the ways, point point out all your faults or all your brokenness. First of all, they can't. But second of all, they don't have the right. That's your job as a follower of Jesus? Are you living in light of Christ's action for you? As we close in prayer, I want to note that obviously this is an ongoing sermon series that we're going to keep picking this up next week and the weeks to come. But also want to just give you a moment as we pray to to consider that question. And if there's something hidden back there in the darkness that you don't want anyone to see about, to see or you don't want anyone to hear about, invite you in the quietness of this prayer just to first share it with God, to share the shame, to share the brokenness, to share the anger, the pain, to just bring it and hold it up to him and see what he can do with it. That's step one. And then we'll continue from there. Please pray with me. Father God, We come as broken people. As the hymn says, your grace is amazing. So amazing that it would save a wretch like me, like Adrian. 
God, there are, there are the parts of us that each of us and all of us are eager to share with you and with the world around us. And then there are the parts and the pieces and the thoughts and the desires and the sins that, that we hide away. But God, you are a God of light. And we believe because Scripture says that that light brings life. And so hear us this morning as we hold out a dark and shadowy part of ourselves in prayer to you. Help us to see the life that might come from confession, that might come from the assurance of knowing that we are loved and that we have life with you. Hear our prayer, Lord. Father, as your light shines on the dark places of our hearts, on the dark places of our lives, comfort us, encourage us, fill us with your spirit and a deep knowledge of your unconditional love for your people so that we might see the light and rejoice and not cower in fear or in darkness anymore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing in just a moment, I Saw the Light. And so if you're able, please stand and we'll sing together before our final.